Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix podcast. I'm Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for being here. Man, this has been a crazy week for me. I'm five days away from getting married, and this has just been a nutty week, just trying to get all of the last minute details figured out and, you know, put all those things together. But I got the opportunity to have an interview with today's guest, and I just could not turn it down. He's an amazing engineer. He has worked on records with bands like Rage Against the Machine, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Alice Cooper. He worked with Nickelback. He worked with Rise Against. He worked with Biffy Clyro, Big Wreck, and a whole bunch of other bands. The guy knows his shit. And I'm talking about the one and only Garth Richardson. And uh, it's awesome to get the chance to chat with Garth because, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, his dad, Jack Richardson, was actually one of my early mentors. And I learned a ton from him. And obviously, Garth did. And Garth has gone on to make amazing records since. And uh, it's really fun to get into some of the discussion about that and talking about his dad and his history in the studio and just just talking about classic records like the very first Rage Against the Machine record, which is one of my favorite records. It's an amazing record. And uh, it's really cool to get into some of those conversations and learn a little bit more about the history of those records and everything that went into it. So I know that you're going to find this conversation really fun. And Garth shares a lot of great tips inside of here. And I'm really excited for you to check this out. So let's just jump right into it. So Garth, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, for people who might not necessarily know about your background in music and how you got into this, could you give us some of your story in your own words there? Oh, and let's see. I was actually five years old. My dad was doing actual Coca-Cola commercial with Mr. Bobby Akartola. Yeah, that's when I got my first reel-to-reel tape. And I went, what the fuck is this? This thing is so cool. I didn't know what it was, but it was tape. But from that age, I've always wanted to do this. And so, like, I used to hang out at my dad's studio in Toronto when I was 13, 14, 15. I used to go to school and sleep. And then after school, I'd go down and actually clean clean up the actual studios and, and do all the offices. And then just go in and actually hang around and just watch watch the first Peter Gabriel record being made. I got to see Mark Farner from, from actually Grand Funk Railroad, the Bay City Rollers, John Denver, you actually Tim Curry, Alice Cooper, or the Guess Who? You know, it just went on and on and on. That's right? amazing. So, so like you said, you got your first tape reel at at the age of five. Like that's that's crazy. So, was your dad like pressuring you to get into it at that? Like maybe not at that age, but you know what? He wanted me to sell shoes, or he wanted me to become like an ambulance driver, or he wanted me to repair elevators. And I went, I'm not doing that shit. I want to do this. And so it's like. When he never told me that, he told that through, you know, what actually through my sister. And she said, have you thought of becoming an elevator repairman? I went, looked at him, went, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, no, that's not the plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he didn't really want me to get into it. But then after I got into it, he, he was proud. Do you think that was like, because... Like I, I find a lot, I find a lot of people that work in music are like, oh, I don't want my kids touching music. Like, yeah, well, you, uh, well, you know what? Everybody wants their sons and their daughters to become doctors and lawyers and all that kind of stuff. And what do you want to have to go through? Because he was away all the time. He was never home. The fact is, is that my mom, he was gone for eighteen months straight, 
And my mom got so angry. She went down to his office and took out a full page ad in actually Billboard magazine that said, Jack, come home, surely. I, I remember him telling me that story. Right. And of course, he was <laughs> in the studio and he opened up the trades and he saw the things, went, guys, I got to go home. I'll see you later. Right. So he didn't want me to have to go through the, through the same thing. But the only way that you can become you actually master this trade is that it's an 18 to 20 hour a day, seven days a week, three, 366 days a year because you just don't stop. Right. Maybe this is a personal question to ask then, but like, I, I would think that as a young child and not having your parents around, like for that long at a time, like I'm sure like it must have crossed your mind at some point, like, do I really want to be like kind of committing myself to that same lifestyle? Well, you know what? I can ask us all the people that have a bit, but by the bug, there's this bug that you get bit by. So like, what's your bit? But I've never had a real job. I've, I've never had to get up and put on a suit and go into an office and, you know, you know, just be fucking miserable. I get to play. I get to play with, with bands, with songs, look at snare sounds, guitar, you know, sounds, guitar, guitar pickups, guitar, you, you know, you know, everything that you just basically, you get to have fun, right? So I know that I should have, you know, I think if you hadn't done this, I would have become like a hockey referee, I think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> you, know, you, know, <laughs> you know, there's uh, there's that power and control, I guess, right? You know. So did you... Growing up then, did you play any instruments at all? Or were you just like strictly a studio engineer guy? Well, the actually funny thing is in high school, you actually played the French horn. Nobody ever wanted to date a a French horn player. (laughs) You never saw a girl and a guy walking home from school carrying extra French horn, right? So I decided that I was not going to play the French horn anymore. I played the double bass for like a while. Um, and from there, I just got into the studio, you know, and I could sing. Uh, the fact is, is that my mom and dad met because my mom sang, my dad played bass in a band and, uh, my dad, uh, my dad was asked to go pick up with a new singer, which happened to be, happened to be my mom. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what? It's a cool story. Very cool. So then with your background and not really, like you said, you played French horn just for a little bit. So with your background now of like now, now that you're recording live guitars and drums and bass and, and all that kind of stuff, how do you feel that the uh, like your, your ability or lack of abilities to play those instruments, I guess, influences the work that you do? It's kind of like the fact is, is that when you look at I do find that when you look at a producer, if he's favorable on actually one instrument, he tends to actually dominate that sound. So my thing is, you know, I'm always looking at the whole picture. But I bet you if you recorded a band with a French horn, it would be like super awesome, right? <laughs> I've never done that before. I've never I've never recorded a French horn player, which is kind of strange, right? Well, any, anyone who's listening to this who plays French horn has to reach out to you. <laughs> Give it up. Give it up. Right? <laughs> no, the bottom the bottom line line is simple. Um, I have always been trained to focus on the song. The song is yeah. the most important thing, and that's it's actually two things: melody, lyrics. That that has to be a lesson from your dad, I feel, because he he taught me that same lesson as well. Yeah, he basically sent home the guess who when they, they were flying to Chicago to to start the extra second record, and uh, when they showed up with the songs, he went, "You have no songs, go home." 
according to that, that was his side, according to Randy and Burton, they tell a completely different story, right? <laughs> yeah, but he sent him home. And on the flight, they, they actually rode laughing. So what was that process like working with your dad at such an early age? Like, because some of your first records and your first credits were like pretty massive records. So like, what was your role in those sessions? And, and how did that learning process go with your dad? Like, was he was he mentoring you along the way or were you just watching what he was doing? Or how'd that work? I come into the session and I'd sit in the corner. And I'd watch and learn and watch and learn and watch and learn. And then I'd never ask any questions, but I always watched everybody. hustle saw everyone's roles because that's a problem with today is there are some very fine defining roles which seem to be getting lost. I remember my very first edit on tape and I blew it. I fucked the edit up so bad. And until my dad's deathbed, Every once in a while you go, you remember the edit that you did for me? (laughs) Right? So I was basically under fire because I basically, you know what, would watch. The problem that that I had was he told me you get a very young age when I was at his studio. At, At home, you're my son. Here, I'm your boss. So he was very, very kind of strict strict with me because he wanted to make sure that I understood this is a business, this is a job, and you had to do it absolutely perfect. You had talked about how the the song is king and how, you know, without that you've got nothing. So in your opinion then, what makes a great song? So something that everybody can like identify with. You know, if you ask me who the people are that bought the nine to twelve million Hootie and the Blowfish records are, I couldn't tell you, but those songs touched 12 million people because they were good songs. Nickelback, Chad is a great songwriter. I know everybody dumps on him, but he's a great songwriter. He's a phenomenal songwriter. So the funny story is I told this, this is probably about the actual 20th thousandth time I've told the story. My dad, it's about 18 years old. So, you know, Pops, this is really, this is what I want to do. He said, okay, then we have to have a conversation. And I go, great. So, like, I had a pad of paper and I had a pen and I was going to write down all of these notes. And he said, okay, okay, ready? And I had the pen ready. I go, go. And he goes, okay, ready? Good songs sell, bad songs don't. And then he leaves the room. <laughs> and I go, that's it? And in the back, he goes, that's it. Right? So, you know what? Everybody knows a great song, you know, like who let the dogs out? Wolf. You know what? Everyone knows a song as soon as you sing it. No one remembers. I'm sitting on a chair. You're looking out. You know, you know, bad songs are bad songs. Great songs are great songs. The best one, uh, Michael, uh, Michael McCarty, who was a student of Jack's too. And another Fanshawe, but after he, he was out of Fanshawe. He, uh, Michael is probably one of the best song guys around because he understood what a, what a song was. And he also said no to every single songwriter that would come back to him with a song and go, there's a song. And he go, no, it's not good enough. And uh, that's our problem today is because anybody can do a recording. Anybody can write a song and anybody can put it out. And you know what? We are being bombarded by horrible, horrible, horrible music. But there's still gems. There are still amazing things that, that are out there. But my note to everyone here is, 
spend the time learning how to write your song. Study from all of the great songwriters. You know, go and actually play cover songs and just learn what it feels like to play a hit song. Because so many young bands I get, and they come in and they have nine songs, and every song is the exact same structure. You know, intro verse, intro verse, pre-chorus, chorus, verse two, pre-chorus, double chorus, middle eight, chorus out. You know, and it's like, that's kind of boring. It's interesting because I feel like there's a lot of musicians out there that look for producers as somebody who can help them you know, shape their songs and, and get into the arrangements and all that kind of stuff. So in terms of your role as a producer and what you see as your strengths, like how involved do you like to get in, in the songwriting process? Or is it like a case like your dad where you're like, no, these songs are garbage go home and write more. <laughs> you know what? Every single band's different. I used to do this band from Holland called uh, Kensington and uh, uh, their, their song showed up the singer, phenomenal writer, the band, phenomenal players, Everything about the song, uh, the band w- was absolutely phenomenal. And sometimes you kind of have to tell them, you know what, you guys, you know what, you guys are not ready you to go into the studio. And they get all mad at you, going, "We're ready." I go, "Yeah, but nobody is waiting for a shitty record to come out, right?" So learn your craft, learn how to write songs. Do not rush in to make something because. You don't have one chance. Especially these days. Like, you know, it's all about the single pretty much, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, now bands who put out single after single after single after single and and then at the end, they, they I, I actually put out the record, which is so strange. But, you know, that's, but it's a great way, I think, to like, to, you know, there it used to be back in the day that people would write their records and kind of put out 10 songs at once and, you know, hope that they had the one song they caught on. But, you know, at that point, maybe everyone else heard the rest of the songs and was like, this is garbage and they 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 forget about it. Right. But now at least bands have an opportunity where if you if you did happen to release that one weakish song and you can see that your fans don't like it, you have that ability to quickly, you know, give yourself a redo and, and make a better song next time around. Yeah. You also look at the Beatles. Beatles did how many records in, in a short period of time? Creedence, Cold Water Revival, the same thing. But they wrote amazing songs. Because my feeling is this, and it's you know what, I could be I could be completely off. But back in back in the day there, they didn't have internet, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have anything. They had two TV channels, maybe. But they would pick up the guitar and they have a turntable and the new record come out and they play it and then they spend weeks learning it right now we are so busy on our phones and so busy trying to do selfies and you know you know put that same amount of time in into learning learning your craft so would you say that that's probably like the most common mistake that you see in artists these days is that they rush through their songwriting or do you think there's something else in there that you frequently see i think basically there isn't anybody left to mentor people because I grew up watching Bob Ezrin work, uh, 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 watching my father work, watching Michael Wagner work, watching Dave Green work, while watching you know like all these incredible people work, and I saw how they dealt with artists. Now everybody is sitting in their bedrooms, in their condos, in their in their basements, in their garages. And in the old days, we used to be at a studio, and if if there were three to four rooms around the studio, you would go and say hi to all the other sessions and you 
talk to the engineers. What are you doing? Oh, I'm doing this. Thing. Oh, that's a cool idea. Have you thought, you know, like there's all this extra communication between us. Now, you know, now it's like you're on your phone texting, right? There is no like us here now, right? So I do think that we have to become, um, and of course, this is, just, this is just the old guy talking. I do think that we have lost that human feel to our sound. And it makes a lot of sense though, right? Like being in the studio, you you definitely learn like people skills is, is a massive part of making records. And, and whenever you're working, if you're, if you're an engineer trying to make a living off of it, you have to have those people skills. And, you know, if you're just sitting at home, not talking to anybody, you'll never, never master that. Yeah, true, so, true. So that true. definitely makes sense that what, what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, one record that I really wanted to pick your brain about that, obviously it was a, a major record in your career. And one of my favorite records is the first rage record. Like okay. that, that yeah. record to me is just a classic. And you know, how, how, or how many years now since that came out and, and we did it in 1990 and it came out in 91. Amazing. Yeah. It still holds the, the test of time. So there to, to, to your sentiment of like great songs, right? Like that's, that's it. Well, right you there. know, the funny thing is we didn't know it. We just went in and we made something that, that we thought was cool. You know, when the label wanted us to edit down, dun, 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 now you're under control, dun, 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 you know, they wanted that, wanted that part out. And we're like, no, you know, <laughs> and of course the band fought for it, right? You know, so, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was I was curious to know if, if you in the process of it felt like this is this is going to be like something massive. Or well, we were so tired because we did the uh, we did the record in actually thirty days straight, and we were exhausted. Uh, we were working from ten ten uh, from probably ten in the morning un, until four in the morning every day. You know, so because you know what we spent like a lot of time time. Uh, the one thing we did with that record is uh, we didn't want to bring them in. Well, at least I didn't want to bring them in into the studio and have their amps in, you know, like in these little huts, and then have them on headphones, and then have you know Tom's amp coming through his headphones and him going, I can't hear my guitar, and then no, no, that's too much guitar from Zach, and you know Tim would complain. So I actually brought in like a full concert PA system. I put the drums uh, behind the PA system. I put Tom and Tim's amps in the other room, and then we blasted everything back out through the PA system because I didn't want that band for them to sound like they were making extra studio record. I wanted it to be you know, a performance. That seems to be lost nowadays because everybody can get the drum tracks, edit them all up, get the bass track, edit it, guitars, edit it, tune, fly, fix. That record was done on tape. There was no editing there was no pro tools there was no tuning i love that that was your approach for that and, I, and clearly it worked and and if anyone's ever seen rage against the machine play live like you know that there's an energy to what they do right yeah yeah my pre-pro with them was i got to do the i got to mix mix their live sound i got to go actually on the house and i got to i got to play them and that that was when i went hmm i can't take these guys into the studio and have them all handcuffed wasn't it true that there was like a, a crowd at some point? Like you guys invited some people to watch them or is that, a, is that just fictional? You heard from, uh, 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 let's see, it was Dave Grohl came out and said, <laughs> Tom Morello said that Tom wanted all his friends, friends that had come into the studio and that was his idea. And that really wasn't his idea. <laughs> I thought that was my, my thought. Just like in the Sound City movie, the band wanted to go to record at Sound City. I was the one that brought them to Sound City. But you know what Alice Cooper always said, never let the truth get in the way of a great story. There you have it. I'll, I'll cut this part out so that that... Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. 
put it in, please, if you have to. Yeah. So so then that being said, like having a crowd in a studio, especially when you're going to tape and, and you're not able to make like the same amount of edits that you people would see these days, like were there any kind of precautionary measures that you had to take to to make sure that like there was no bleed or any of like crowd sounds or any of that? Well, we just told them at the end of the song, just don't clap because our job, well, at least my job and Stan's j- j- job, Stan, Stan, who helped me engineer the record, me as the engineer, our job was to capture that band live. And I felt that watching them live, they, they, they were feeding off the crowd. So when there's a crowd there, they could have that same feed. Um, I think that, that night we got three, three, uh, three songs from top to bottom. And, and so the, was that a thing that you guys did throughout the whole record? Like where you had the, well, we tried to, we, we did try to do, go in and do as much live off the floor as possible. Uh, Zach at some point lost his voice. So when it came time, time to redo sax vocals, put them with, with actually can, cans on. I got him inside of the control room, cleared out the front of the console, turned up the monitors as loud, loud as I could go. And then, just just gave him like a sure 58 and i went just go and he just went off wow because i didn't want you know what bleed did not matter her performance you know did matter so it was a 58 for his for his vocals 58 through the whole record i i fucking love that like yeah 58 full blast amazing fun amazing i love that that's great yeah so, I mean, these days we work in an era where like so many people record each instrument like one at a time and there's so much separation. And and I'm curious, do you still track records live off the floor like that? And, and, and if so. Yeah, I do try to. But you know what the problem is, is that nobody really plays together anymore. So that was my follow up question is like, if so, like what are the requirements for you to determine whether a band's good enough to do it? You got to have a band that's good enough to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you, <have> to- <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, um, it's kind of like if you're going to hire, hire basically session players, then you know what? You're going to be fine because they can play. But when, when you're looking at a young band, the other bands that we did live off the floor were the Melvins. That was like they would play the, you know, fucking rhythm, bass and drums live, live off the floor. There wasn't many, you know, because it's an art. So do you focus a lot on pre-production before you get into the studio with the band? Well, it depends because you, you, you know, nowadays budgets how to determine that if you have a huge budget yes if you don't have a huge budget then you can't because budgets have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller but bands bands want more time you know and that's why that's why you have to to get the song as as close as you can and then just edit it and tune it and time it right it's, it's sad this may kind of tie into one of my earlier questions about you know, how involved do you get in, in the process of, of making your records and producing them? But, you know, when you look at a guitar player like Tom Morello, for example, like he's he's widely known as being this like super innovative, creative guitar player and, you know, the guitar hero of his time and yep. sounds yep. that we had never heard at the time. Right. So when you have someone working with you like that, like how involved did you get from the engineering side in terms of like trying to shape some of those tones or with a guy like that? Do you just leave him to be creative? Well, you know what? <laughs> with Tom, it was like the sound, you know, with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the sounds were there. With Rage, the sounds were there. Um, some bands, it's like when we did the Melvins, we would put 
buzz through Richard 58, singing through 15 uh, guitar pedals, going to an amp with a tube at the end of the speaker, and then we mic the end of the speaker. And uh, that was his vocal sound. Those times were phenomenal because we could do whatever the fuck we wanted to do. They were the most insane memories of like, that was cool. <clears throat> Every band is different. Uh, sometimes you kind of, there's a few producers that uh, tend to give the band, here's a couple of, actually a hundred bucks. Why don't you guys go down to the local strip club? And when we leave, he actually replays all the parts. So when you do get somebody that can play and someone that has a sound, you get to sit back and and just, again, make sure that you capture his sound. Tom played through extra 50-watt Marshall and a 50-watt PV. That was it. I couldn't imagine just being in your position and like having somebody who's, you know, got all these tools now. And, and you know, they're not like they were unusual tools. They, like they were just regular pedals that everyone had seen. But to hear that combination of things must have been interesting well that uh, that was somebody who was very uh, creative right and uh, the first thing that i do when a band comes here is i have like two 200 pedals and you know all kinds of heads and guitars and i say you know if we have time i say okay you're gonna spend a day just by yourself and go through everything play everything and see what it sounds like go through every pedal and see if it inspires you right um, uh, see what you like, see what you don't like, see if this works, see, see if this doesn't work and, and, and just learn because, because everyone is always online look, looking at stuff. Nobody really tends to sit and or get hit pedals and just learn, you know, just see what they do, you know, or amps or, you know, you know, actually drum sounds too. Right. You know, so if I have time, I actually spend time. Making them learn stuff, you know, how's this pedal? Does does this pedal work? Right. And I and I found it interesting that on the liner notes of that record, they they did make a point of being like all sounds made by guitar, bass, and drums, no samples. You know, was that something you guys had discussed going into it? Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, that that was that that was that band was a hundred percent organic. And uh, one last question I have about that Rage record because it was honestly so such an inspirational record for me. But but lyrically. Um, that album, it's like, it's so strong and so powerful. And, and obviously they, they left their imprint on the industry and how political they were and, and the message that they made. But at the same time, that record is also very simple and there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of parts that some people might think were just not, you know, it's a lot of repetition, right? So, you know, could there have been more lyrics? Could like, was there ever any discussion about that kind of stuff or was it intentional to keep things simple and repetitive and, and use that as like a, a, a power mechanism almost? Um, I can't speak for the fact that we, that we actually sat down and said, you know, I said, you know, Zach, you need to not write anymore. This is what Zach came up with. We added, we added things to it. We added answer lines, you know, like in the second half, in the second half of actually killing, you know, Dana, not now you're in control, but you know, you know that, that was the answer line. That, that was just something that we discussed about. Uh, in the actual uh, uh, freedom, uh, Zach read from uh, what's his name's book, um, Ma uh, Malcolm X's book, because the song was so powerful that you know, uh, I mean, this big bridge, we had this big breakdown section. And I said, dude. Go through your Malcolm X book. It was actually, you know, there with. And I said, you know what? 
is there anything in there that you want to say for, from the book? And he's, yeah. And then we had some lines from, you know, there, right? So everything was probably 95% there, but that extra 5% is a hard thing to find, right? There's something about your records that I, I've always just really admired in, in terms of like how big they are and, and sometimes, you know, just how simple they are as well, you know, going back to the lyric. But but I think it, it all really just comes back to that same thing we talked about at the beginning of the song, you know? Yeah. Well, you know what the thing the thing that that I do with a lot of drummers because drummers tend to want to overplay. Drummers want to be heard. They want to play every cymbal and every tom tom hit. And I I always ask the drummers, do you know what the singer's singing? Yes, I do. Okay, so when you're playing, keep time and sing the song. When you're not singing, there's a whole few to do a fill. So it's all it's all about getting a song. And having the drummer building the actual foundation. If he's all over the place and he's actually crazy, it doesn't work. Rage was a completely different story. But when you look at Biffy Clyro, you look at Big Rec Record I did, and all the other records I've done, I tend to actually beat up the drummer. And the drummer is always at the end of the record, I don't know, man, I don't know. And then when, when it's all done and they hear it finished, they go, I get it now. Yeah, because everything has to have its place. It's, and space is so important. And and that's one of the things with the with the big rec records that I, I I love how kind of they have a groove to them and there's there's air and there's space in it. And uh I Chuck Chuck played on the on the latest record, right? Chuck yeah, I used to work with him, so um Phenomenal you being Ian, Dave and him are three phenomenal you beings. It's also sad that actually Brian passed. You know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's still weird. But I guess, I guess segueing into Big Rec, because that's obviously uh, one of your more modern records that sounds massive as well. Um, <laughs> well, you know, like, he's a great player. Absolutely. Your records always have amazing big guitar sounds in general, I find. And I was wondering if there, if you could share any sort of insight into in terms of what your normal guitar process looks like and in terms of how you would record them and what, what your setup would be like. Okay, well... This is like a long story. Uh, my dad, back in in the early '80s, went to this guy named named actually Kirk Elliott, who happened to be the tech at the studio called Phase One. And my dad went, Kirk, I want to be able to plug in more more than one head. But if you plug in from a pedal to a pedal, pedal, and then you wire them into heads, it's going to load. It's going to load down. So Kirk designed this little box with a nine volt battery in it that you could plug into at the time, four heads at the same time. Holy fucking shit. Because nobody, <laughs> nobody I was ever doing that. So Kirk made this box that I have two of them. Joe Abrisi has one, the army has one, and there's a few others out there. And they're the only amazing sounding uh, guitar splitter. Uh, the actual radical, I think it's radical. Is it ra 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 sorry, uh, radio. radio? They made one, but it doesn't sound good. This one is all hand wired. It's all pick transformers and you know, like all nine yards. And we uh, we spend like a lot of time getting every mic in phase with with each other. Uh, we make sure that we have good sounding heads. We we make sure that we have good sounding cabinets. We make sure that we have good sounding uh, guitars. It's a very slow process of basically making sure that you spend the time to make sure that what's coming out of the speakers is worth miking. 
and we, and we spend like a lot of time getting it into the box so that it sounds right. Um, the biggest thing that I see happening today is everybody has these uh, 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 digital amps and all kind of stuff. Um, it doesn't move air. And you have a real speaker with a real microphone going through a real tube amp. Sounds sounds real. I thought I saw a picture of a Kemper in your studio at one point. So I was curious about that. I do have a Kemper, but I have it because a lot of times you're if you're going to be if a band's writing, or there's a sound that they have, they go, "Oh, that sound we did with the Kemper." Well, I have one here. Um, I hardly ever turn it on, you know. So because it's a great writing tool, it's it's great for somebody that is in an apartment condo. Um, I find that the whole music industry, when it comes to gear, is all going after people that can buy buy gear so that they can do it in their house. Because if I put four Marshall cabinets with four heads in your condo blasting, I think you'd be getting knocks on knocks on your door, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 all you know what? Uh, there are great, great uh, things to do with the digital amps. I just had Devin. The Devin Townsend here, and of course I have completely forgotten the name. Hold on, just let me find that because it's important, uh, Matt. Okay, so uh, Devin Townsend just showed up here, and we spent like a day going through his new Fractal amp. By all means, the best thing that I have that I have ever heard. Phenomenal, yeah. And so Devin and I probably in December are going to do some actual cabinet the cabinet sounds. So that for, for Fractal can use them as the extra Devin Townsend, uh, uh, you know, cabs. But uh, uh, this, this, this thing, the guy that designed the Fractal was uh, was a guy that helped design uh, the uh, uh, what's it called? Called again uh, the Kemper. So he moved on to Fractal, and it's like fucking light years above. So if you have your fans, fans, fans out there, you have to go and actually hunt down the extra fractal because it's phenomenal. It's going to have to check that out. It's insane. So then that, it's interesting that you were talking about having that splitter box. And, and I actually, I, f- I feel like I remember your dad showing me it at one yeah, point because yeah. he was like, yeah, look at this invention we, we came up with. And, <laughs> you know, it was awesome. Um, so in terms of your guitar sound, then, if you're going to four amps, like, do you have a typical recipe that you kind of follow when it comes to guitar sounds? Like, do you have, like, certain combinations or, like, clean versus no, dirty? No, and- every single, you, you know, it's like I told you uh, before, we spend, like, a lot of time with a guitar player, and I say, these are all my heads. You actually play them and and see what they do. So then he go, like, that head, that head, that head, and that head. Okay, great. So let's start there. And then we spend like a lot of time, uh, you know, we don't do like a lot of EQing. uh, But the thing that we do, what we do focus on is everything has to be in tune. And we spend, and I have had guitar players have complete nervous breakdowns on me because we're punching chord by chord by chord by chord. And they're just at the end of each day, they're just beginning to shake and cry and sweat and just like, I can't take this anymore. But oh, but I go, but, but it sounds great because they, uh, they go, yes, it sounds amazing, but it's hard. I go, you, you know what? Making, you know, doing world class records is hard work. You know, you, you know what? It takes like 
it takes like a lot of time. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Like the the idea of recording chord by chord. Could you maybe describe in a little bit more detail, like how what does that process typically look like? Is it literally just like you know, like you're like okay, like bar three. We're okay, so it goes A G uh, uh, A G C A G C C G A. So then, okay, ready? I'm gonna hold the chord tune on the A's, and then every time there's an A chord, he punches in, and they punch out A. A, 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 and we're punch out, punch out, punch out. And then, okay, now let's go get the G chords. And then we go on, okay, ready? G chords. And we go A, G, punch, A, and then like we punch, 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 punch. It's a super long process. It's tedious because my theory is a speaker works one way. It goes in and out. If everything is in tune and everything hits at the same time, the speaker moves out and it works absolutely perfectly right if if the kick drum isn't hitting the same time as the bass does as the same time as other guitars do and if it's not in tune it doesn't sound good it, it, it like the speaker struggles to, to go in and out right yeah i find that very fascinating yeah yeah and and i think it's very i think it's funny like considering we were also just talking about like recording live off the floor and how those would be totally different dynamics right because because they're you are going after an emotion. When when you're here now trying to make a sonically perfect record, that's what it takes. So on that note then, at what point in your career did you feel like you were starting to make records that were great? I still records? haven't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're always, you're always at the end of a record, you're kind of going, ah, I could do that better. I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have done that. Well, there are moments that you kind of go, yeah, that you know, that was a good record. And there's sometimes you kind of go, there are some records I haven't played since they were made because I just don't want to listen to it because it was so far off. I was in here. And I think that that's really important is like that pursuit, that constant pursuit of trying to get better and pushing yourself. And, you know, there's only you can only go up from there, right? Yeah, true. And and sometimes you're going to experiment and make those mistakes. And that's a good thing, too. Right. You, you, you were right there. If you fuck up. That's that's actually kind of how you learn. So on that note, obviously, you know, trial and error, it's a it's a very common thing. We all make mistakes. Do you have any examples of anything that's gone like horrible in a session that you just like really like learned a big lesson from? Or was it the tape cutting <laughs> with your dad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that one lasted for like 25 years of him. You know that Eddie did for me. You fucked it up. I was like, yeah, dad, I know. Oh, I just want to make sure you knew. Right. You, you know, so. You know what? It was it was pretty pretty comical. You basically let's see. Uh, the the one thing that if you fuck up, you have to learn how to fix it. And I have known guys, and I won't say their names or what the record was, that that they were doing actual horn section, and the session was done, and the second engineer accidentally fucked up and erased. A track and he had to call call back up by the horn players and have them come back in on his dime and call mm -hmm. up and say man fucked up you know like i lost this this track can you come back in and just replay the part for me and they did you know so it's always learning is if you fuck up being able to figure out how to fix it and, yeah. and actually getting it to where no one knows there's a great story where I was seconding for my father 
and he was doing uh, the he was doing uh, the Irish Rovers Christmas record, and we were mixing the actual uh, masters at issue thirty, the issue TV mixes at issue fifteen, and I accidentally did not put the, put the machine back up to thirty, and we did the master mix, and then when we did the TV mix. I realized when I had to take out the master mixes and I hit play and it was really slow. And I was like, Oh fuck. So while, <laughs> while they were getting the next song uh, mixed, I went and got the other <laughs> quarter inch machine. I told the engineer, I really just want to make sure that the tones just want to make sure they're right in the machine because I'm not sure about this machine. So he's okay. Yeah, just do it. Do it. So like I brought in another machine, aligned it, copied the, the master mix that that was at fifteen two thirty, and then inserted it back into the master reel, and he still he still doesn't know. <laughs> so you learn learn to do things on your feet fast. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that your dad also really taught me early on too. Is like, you just if you're gonna make mistakes, own it. Yeah, like yeah, you know, but fix it. Do don't make a scene out of it. <laughs> you don't want to do that with my dad. What's that? Be because he would have had me by the back of my shirt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he was oh, kind to others, but you know, when you're family, it's his name. Right. Especially, especially if like you weren't kind of like, if you're just hanging out in the studio and like, yeah. you know, interning or whatever you want to call it. Right. Like, you know, the last thing he wants is for, for, for you to mess up and, and hit, you know, that makes a lot of sense for sure. So then on that note of, um, of learning as well, for people who are getting into recording and mixing and all that stuff now, what advice do you have for those people who are just getting started? Oh, you know what? That's a good question. You know, if you want to do it, you got to put all your effort into it. You know, you know, and 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 stop looking at the screen. Start and start using your ears. Um, I find that we have become a wall. That looks good. How does it? You know, how does it sound? Spend the time making sure that what 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 you put in front of the microphone sounds good. And the other big tip that I have to say is if you put it into the box, if it's a shitty sound, no matter how many plugins you put on it, it won't make it a better sound. You know, you, you know, spend the time, go out, listen. If you're going to do real drums, listen to the drum sound out on the floor. If they don't sound good out there, no matter what you do inside of the control room, they're going to sound horrible. You know, it's always about the source. Even when you like add samples and stuff like that on top of it, like if, if you still have that foundation of shitty drum sounds, you're still going to have that, that element there. The best mic that they think of buy for, for, for actual first time mic is the mic that you have right there. The, the SM7? SM7 is the best versatile mic that you can get. Yeah, it's great. Ever since I bought this, I've, I, lo I love it. It's great. Yeah, it's for great. vocals, hi-hat, kicks, snare, guitars, it's a fantastic mic. Hey, well, you made you made a one of the most legendary records with the SM58 on vocals, so. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, it's, you know what it, it happens. That's perfect. Well, I, I love everything you said there, and, and uh, I, I think I, I've heard it from a couple people now, but I like en engineers, not engine eyes. Exactly. Know? Don't be an engine. eye, be an engineer. Y yeah. Because you know what? Some people goes, well, well, it looks good. I go, this is not a video shoot. 
right? Yeah, what this is a this is a actual audio session, so use your ears. I think that's a good spot to wrap up because I think you know it's a pretty pretty important note to leave off on. But uh, but for uh, for people who want to learn more about you and and the projects you're working on, how can they follow you online? You know what? I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and I'm on Twitter, and I have a website, but but it's down right now because it's just down for some stupid reason. But you can find me at gagagarth.com, g g g a r t h dot com. Awesome. And uh, any cool projects that you're working on right now that you can share? You know what? Um, I just finished three records in a row. I did, uh, uh, I did uh, basically Danko Jones. I did this band, Hungai, from China. It's a, it's a Mongolian throat-singing folk metal band with big band brass. Amazing. It's the most fucked-up record that I've ever worked with. <laughs> it's so crazy. You're just like going what acid trip were we on but you know what phenomenal and then a band from holland called uh kensington and i just did a song with with this artist called isque who she is phenomenal the most talented human being that i've ever met she is insanely great from from toronto area right yeah she she, she i think she's in hamilton right now but phenomenal artist knows exactly who she is what her sound is she is 100% true. Well, looking forward to checking those records out. Good. Please do. I'm disappointed to hear that with that, that one record you mentioned that sounds so eclectic. There was no French horn. You know what? There wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's a crazy record. Well, Garth, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And, and uh, I really appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. Good. Peace. Namaste. So that was my interview with Garth Richardson. And how cool was that, right? Like learning all about the history of the Rage Against the Machine record, like I, I just absolutely loved that and totally fanboyed out over that because it, it's, it's such a good record. Like if you haven't heard it, you're living under a rock. You got to check it out. It's amazing. But yeah, I had a lot of fun chatting with Garth and, and chatting about his dad too. And I, I, I miss his dad dearly. His dad was an awesome guy who, if it weren't for him, I would have a completely different mindset when it comes to making records these days. So, you know, I'm very appreciative of my time that I got to spend with him. Obviously, he had a big impact on Garth and, and the work that Garth does. And it's amazing to hear that Garth is just absolutely crushing it these days and making amazing records. So, Garth, if you're listening to this, once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I had a great time chatting with you and can't wait to chat again. And guys, if this is your first time listening to the Master Mix podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. That would be a humongous help. Honestly, it just helps get more exposure. It lets people realize that this is a podcast worth listening to, and it would mean the world to me if you could do that. Also, if this is your first time hearing about Master Your Mix, please make sure to check out the website, masteryourmix.com. And on that website, I'm constantly uploading new tutorials and I've got courses and emails that go out with tips and tricks and all sorts of good stuff to help you with making more music. Because really, the more music you create, the bigger impact you can make. And I just want more people to get their music out there because I, I feel like... Every time I listen to some of my students work, like it just blows me away with all of this music that people are sitting on. And, you know, I, I want to get more of this stuff out there. So that is a big driving force behind why I made Master Your Mix in the first place and why I do this podcast. So make sure to check it out, masteryourmix.com. And when you visit the website, if you sign up for the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is my guide to using EQ and compression, you'll get all of the emails and all of the content. And I'll keep you up to date with any new podcast episodes that air as well. So that's it for this episode. Once again, thank you so much for listening and I've got to get back to doing some wedding planning. So wish me luck and I'll talk to you in the next episode, guys. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.